demographics seem to favor the United States from a perspective of future consumption. Actually, Europe and countries like Japan have really, really bad demographic charts where they have an aging population and a much smaller group of young people. The United States is in the situation where millennials are actually the largest generation. And even though we're cash strapped, just from a purely demographic perspective, the United States is looking much better over the next 20 years or 30 years than China with their one child policy, Japan with very aging policy, and also Europe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast. My name is Kareem Baruki, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Brent Philbin. Hello. Good morning. So happy to be on a podcast. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And uh, Adam Levy. Hi. (laughs) Adam, you're clearly supposed to break into a long song. Very disappointed. You know, I thought about that and I just thought it was going to be an absolute train wreck. And I just figured, you know, we're going to be minimalist Adam today. Hello. Nice. Hi. Nice. Nice. Not all of us can sing like Brent, actually. So let's just be real. Pretty much. So, guys, today's episode, I wanted to cover more of a broad topic, general. I don't know if you guys have heard, but the economy of the United States and generally the world is kind of going through some interesting transitions. Um, yeah. We are living in unprecedented times in some ways. Yeah. And uh, of course, because of the coronavirus, a lot of these things that might have been trends that have already been happening have been accelerating. So I thought it would be interesting to take a chance to just kind of go over some of the major concepts. Like we know that the Fed is stimulating the economy. We know that we hear the words, hey, money's being printed. And I thought it would be interesting to really look at the numbers, actually, to have some idea of what we're talking about. And to look at some of the arguments or theories as to how bad is this or how common is this, what we could expect from this, why countries might handle things this way. Anyway, general economic monetary policy questions. Okay. I'm excited. So it's not direct related to crypto, but it matters. All of this matters because of the reasons why we've moved ourselves to crypto, right? Like you have to understand what is wrong or maybe what is right. I don't know where we're going with this, but with the current system before you make a choice to go all in on a new system. So why? Yeah, 100%. I'm also just excited because like, I I kind of have been slacking on what the economy has been doing the past week. So, you know, you're, you know, past a little bit, you're gonna, you know, educate me greatly today. (laughs) Yeah, this is, this was very educational for myself. I think I learned a lot prepping for this episode, which uh, was part of the fun, was part of the idea for honestly, just curiosity, and then putting on paper the things that I was learning as we as we went along. And Brent, one of the things I wanted to say is, it is. I think it is a little bit directly connected to crypto, just from the perspective of I know that we have a lot of dreams and ideals about what crypto could be, the problems that it could help solve, right? But I mm-hmm. think that we are talking about uh, an asset, maybe like a digital asset class, maybe it's a new asset class. But basically, the conversation that we are about to have really addresses 
underlying asset values for all kinds of things, whether it's real estate, whether it's the stock market, whether it's the economy, whether it's the cost of goods and services. This discussion is like kind of the bedrock, right? Monetary policy in a lot of ways dictates a lot of the price actions that we see. So to the extent that crypto is an asset in crypto's economics, you know, this is the ground it's built on as of right now. Right. This is the reality. Quick uh, legacy finance anecdote before we get started here, just to start us off on kind of a funny note before we get into <laughs> the thing. <laughs> the, the other day, Spirit stock was like crashing hard and it's already down like 80% or something like that. So because I am not a financial advisor and I don't know anything, I just kept buying it as it was going down. Like every 5% it dropped. I was like, well, time to buy some more Spirit because... I, in my opinion, they're not going anywhere. They're they're going to exist as a whatever. And so then the guy, this guy on Barstool Sports, released like a quick Instagram that Who, my Dave friend Portnoy. I don't know which one he is. So he it, sent. It, is it he, well? So like Dave has been the guy who's like been he's been putting like millions of dollars in the stock market every day and talking about it. So it's, okay, so it's probably that guy. <laughs> Either way, they, he they sent me a thing where he's like, I don't know. All I know is I keep buying spirit stock and that's all I'm doing. It's got to come up eventually. And he's like, make it was funny to watch him say it. But then his very next like snap or Instagram or whatever it was, might have been TikTok, whatever they sent it to me on. It, they sent it to me on WhatsApp, but I don't go on any of the other things that it was on. And it, the very next thing he said was, we need our freedoms back. We need to be able to stop wearing masks. And he was like one of those. And I'm like, holy fuck, I'm making the wrong decision. I used no other input. Then the fact that that guy was dumb to decide that I should probably not be investing <laughs> anymore in spirit. So that's apparently he lost like millions in the, like the, the the first few weeks after quarantine, and then um, he's now been like doing well. So I, I think he's just clicking buttons. Uh, maybe you should not be taking advice from uh, you know a guy who's past. 15, 20 years has been running a podcast empire, not clicking buttons on the stock market. But that's hilarious that you ended up uh, just being like, well, this guy who I just saw on a random story says yeah. I should buy spirits. So I'm buying spirit. No, 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 no. I did the opposite. Oh. The fact that he is saying he was buying spirit stopped me from continuing to buy it. Oh, and then as soon it. as I became positive on my cost basis, I sold it. So and it's like hovering right around there anyway now. So I don't know if it's going to end up. Being oh, OK. Good. Negative so decision. You, you were listening and then you're like, oh, wow, this guy's saying yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. I was like, holy shit. So basically <laughs> the equivalent of us giving you any advice. Like the second we do, you should be like, no, I'm going to do the exact opposite of that. Like anyway. Sorry. OK. Sorry. No, it's OK. And Adam, it's worth noting, too, as far as this guy doing poorly after quarantine and doing well recently well you know that matches the performance of the market that's almost what we would expect right yeah. it's almost like from a poker perspective it's like somebody started doing really crappy when the casino tripled the rake <laughs> and then <laughs> uh it turns out that they to change it the casino decided hey no rake and on top of that uh every hand ace high we're gonna splash the pot with a hundred dollars <laughs> right and somebody's like oh my god i went on this sick upswing yeah you and everybody else became a winning player right so, yeah, but I did want to mention one other thing, Brent, just because you mentioned spirit. I thought this was interesting. There is an economist, quote unquote, global strategy. He he 
uh, studies demographics. I'm going to na- mention him later in the show. His name is Peter Zahan, but he actually retweeted recently a picture of the market capitalization of a bunch of airlines, and he's like, "This is the this is the COVID economy or the quarantine economy." Southwest, Delta, United, IAG, Lufthansa, American Airlines, and Air France, all of them together, KLM, all of them together right now, capitalization, $46 billion. Zoom, $48 billion. Wow. So right now, Zoom is worth more than like six major airlines put together. That seems kind of ridiculous because uh, Google and Facebook in the past couple of weeks have come out with new... like. Their hand has been forced, right? Yeah. So yeah. basically now they have a app competitor to Zoom. Both of them do. Like Facebook Messenger, now you can go video, you can do group chats, and Google has the same thing. So it's like, what is Zoom really providing compared to these guys? Yeah, no. You know? And a lot of times it's just a market uh, like advantage or... Uh, but we can see that that disappears, right? Because you don't even have to go yeah. anymore to the old, oh, look, MySpace. Yeah, forget about MySpace. Uh, everybody is, quote, unquote, Skyping on Zoom right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Sky, <laughs> Skype supposedly has... Skype is the worst. Discord is just the best. Like, I don't even know why, you know, Discord kind of got forgotten about all this. You know, they, they, they're they appealing to gamers. They're targeting gamers. That's why. But like Skype is legitimately the worst experience I've had. On any online phone, any online video, like yep. Skype is awful. So yeah. anyway, fuck Skype. No, definitely, definitely. So, but anyway, so let's 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 move on to the meat and potatoes here of this topic. All right, and we're gonna kick things off, guys, with a big picture. Let's look at the overall numbers, and then we're kind of gonna start swimming into it, diving a little deeper and a little deeper. So, the U.S. has officially now crossed the 25 trillion total debt threshold in the last 5 years we have added 7 trillion in debt so now we are officially past 25 trillion and according to data from the US treasury the national debt right now is growing at a rate of approximately 1.2 million dollars per minute which in case you're trying to do the math is about 1.7 billion dollars a day that is the rate at which our debt is increasing Right. And of course, if you talk about the national debt, one of the ways that has become customary to talk about debt in relation to countries is debt to GDP, because debt to GDP essentially is kind of like comparing your personal debt to your income level. It's not exactly that because a nation's GDP is not exactly like its income, but GDP reflects total economic activity and debt, right? right? Total liability. So it's a good ratio kind of to look at. So let's go back to 2019 before the quarantine and the pandemic started. Publicly held federal debt was approximately 80% of GDP in the United States. 80% of GDP at approximately $17 trillion. And when the Congressional Budget Office last year did an estimate trying to say, hey, how bad is this going to get because the debt is growing at a very rapid pace, they estimated that if we continued at the same rate, we were going to be at 98% by the year 2030. So by 2030, we were almost going to be at Jesus. 100% uh, debt to GDP. Now wow. fast forward to the current rate. <laughs> so uh, real, real quick to speak on America's debt for a second. It's like loaning money to like, like the mountain from Game of Thrones. Like, what are you going to do if you go ask him for your $100? And he's like, 
come fucking take it from me. You're not. You're just like, all right, well, whatever. The mountain got my money. Like, I guess. Thanks. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> why would anybody loan us money out of this? This has been a thing for the past 15, you know, I mean, as long as I've understood the economy or, or been a, an adult, I feel like I've heard about the debt. And when is it going to come to a head and countries are just going to be like, pay up? You know, it just doesn't seem like a thing that that just seems like it said, like, yeah, well, we have a debt. It keeps increasing. What? Like, it doesn't seem like anything good changes. Good luck coming to get it. So there's yeah. a couple of issues here, guys, which... It's actually really interesting because th- that those are precisely the type of questions that led me down wanting to understand this a little better. And I think that one of the first concepts that we have to learn or kind of get in our heads is that this debt is distributed in a much more fluid and spread out way than we imagine, right? Like, for example, when we say the U.S. has $17 trillion in debt, that doesn't mean that China, Japan, and Germany gave us a couple of checks for a couple right. of trillion dollars and we're going to pay them back. What that means is that when the United States government needed to raise money, they started selling bonds, U.S. treasuries that are basically saying to investors, hey, we're going to pay, you know, give us $100 today and we will give you $105 in three years. And then those investors can then take those bonds and sell them in the free market. Now, because it's an open market, a ton of people buy that for personal reasons. So for example, let's say you're aging into your retirement as an American citizen. You want to start transitioning away from stocks because you want to take less risk and you want to get something that is stable, something income producing. Well, a US treasury is considered one of the safest, most guaranteed assets in the world. And Brett, I know you're laughing, but even like even though it's funny from our perspective, it's still true when you compare it to almost any other treasury that you can buy right now, right? The United States is still the world's largest economy, and you still have investors. If you are reaching retirement in Greece or Colombia or China or whatever, and you have the ability to buy something where you want your assets to be stable, you're not going to buy Colombian bonds. You're not going to buy Greek government bonds. Buying U.S. treasuries is the safest way or the safest hedge. So we'll get more into that. But I think the main point I want to make here is it's not a monolithic like debt to a bank, but rather the United States government owes to millions of entities that vary from investors to hedge funds to governments to treasury, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Right. So, okay. So, so it's more fluid. But- the question of when is the limit, Adam, which is the question you asked, like, when does it come to a hedge? Because we've been hearing about this forever. That's actually a pretty hotly debated question, not just politically, but apparently even at an economic level, there is some debate about how much does it really mean? Does it matter if a nation has a lot of debt, right? So we'll touch a little bit more on that, but I want to go back to the update. Remember, in 2019, Congress, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that by 2030, we would be at 98% at the GDP. Right now, after the stimulus package, we are looking at 107% debt to GDP right now, today. We already crossed the threshold that they thought we wouldn't so cross. So we're in 2032 already. <laughs> we're in 2032 already. And officially, when I started, just to give you an idea of how quickly things are moving, when I started researching this, which was like maybe two weeks ago, we were slightly under our historic record for debt to GDP. That historic record happened right after World War II. 
right? Because think of all the money that needed to be raised. We had just been through a huge, massive war. Right after that, the United States had massive debt to GDP, and it was 107%. And some of the articles I was reading were just talking about how like, ooh, we may we may cross that threshold. Well, we crossed that threshold <laughs> since in like the last couple of weeks. <laughs> so we are now officially some like, there's different debts because some of them are looking at total debt. But there's some charts or some numbers that look at total debt to GDP uh, at like 119% right now. If you go to usdebtclot.com, which has a ton of info, again, 119% of debt to GDP. And one of the important things to remember is that that debt has interest, which is what makes it so difficult to keep up with it, right? So oh we all- have- I just went to usdebtclot.org. Holy, <laughs> I don't know if I went to the right thing that you were talking about, but like, there is a lot of shit going on yes. and it is flying. Oh my God. Oh, so you're, what you guys are seeing there is a live count and it's looking at a bunch of different, it's very interesting. You could look at the ratio of gold to the dollar in ounces. You can look at debt per citizen, debt per taxpayer. You can look at unfunded liabilities, tax revenues. Okay. This is all information that's on the site. So I definitely recommend it. If you're listening, you know, you could go there on your phone real quick. Like the opposite of coin market cap. <laughs> Right. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> there's so, so many. There's literally 60, maybe 100 different things that are, are kind of going up or tickers. And it's overwhelming to just would, look well, at everything. They're going kinda, up, but they're already in the reds. So technically, they're going down. Yeah, well, some of them are going yeah. up and, and actually some of them are going down. And we're going to get into that uh, also a little bit more. But before we go on, I, I want to I want, I want give some national perspective or worldwide perspective. What do other debt to GDP ratios look like around the world? Because even though the United States has just reached 118, 19%, which for the record is a historic high, and I'm not making the argument that uh, this isn't a problem at all, right? But let's look at right. some other debt-to-GDPs and see if those countries have completely imploded. So for example, Japan is the world's biggest example. They have been printing money like crazy for decades because they already had their boom and bust. Their current debt-to-GDP is 235%, okay? That seems yeah. unsustainable, but it does get to the point of the question when Adam says, hey, where is the limit? Where does it come to a hedge? Well, anybody looking at a historic chart of the US seeing it go from 80 to 119 might feel like, well, maybe tomorrow, any minute now. But then when we look at a country like Japan, it's at 235. And even though they do have, they do suffer economic consequences, it's not like Japan has imploded or it's a third world country or it has the lowest standard of living on the world or anything by that nature, right? Now, right. We think of Japan as a relatively rich country. Like that's my kind of bias on Japan in my mind. Like I want to go to Japan. I know it'll be expensive to go there. Yeah, I just feel like I want to experience positive opinions of Japan and just feel like, you know, whatever they're doing, they're probably doing it right. So that is very surprising. 100%. So, and here's what makes it more complicated. I put some more countries on here and show the numbers almost because I wanted to show that the correlation isn't very clear. Okay. Sudan only has a 21% debt to GDP ratio. Greece, which obviously had an economic crisis, has a massive 185% debt to GDP ratio. Italy also yeah. has had terrible economic woes. They're above us at 132. Russia, which 
has millions of people struggling in poverty, only has a 15% debt to GDP ratio. China, half of us at 51%. So to me, one of the first things that we need to look at here is, ah, okay, it's a reminder that world economics are much more complex than we think. And we can't just narrow it down to a single number like debt to GDP, because maybe Sudan and Russia have very little debt to GDP because people aren't interested in buying those treasuries. Or maybe it's because of the size of the GDP, or maybe it's because of a million other factors, right? So each economy is kind of very complicated. And even though debt to GDP might be a problem, there's no linear kind of connection that like, oh yeah, countries with high GDP or high debt or low debt to GDP are well-developed. No, it's, it's not that clear. So, okay. So is there a, a correlation, hopefully, that you found or that anybody found or like, do we just don't understand the implications of this? It's like, as this happens where we can have this kind of debt and we can have this kind of thing, like we left the gold standard, like, you know, a drop in the bucket ago compared to the gold standard existing. Right. So how, I don't know. How does that correlate? I, it, I don't know. We need more. We need more information. Kareem. <laughs> yeah. This is man. Really so I remember when people started printing, or sorry, when the government started printing money with quantitative easing, and then like recently after the pandemic started, and it's just I heard that as well, where people were like, "We think we understand," just like the average person thinks they understand the economy, but then all of a sudden, there's all this money being printed, and things aren't acting the way that you thought that they would act. It's very um. The economy is complicated. The world economy is, pro I mean, there's probably very few people on the planet who even understand it. Yeah. And, so, and it reminds me of the words of a wise man. Nobody knew that this was going to be so complicated. Nobody, nobody knew. Uh, never mind channeling my inner Trump there talking about healthcare. But <laughs> nobody could have predicted. predicted yeah. Uh, but anyway, listen. So it's precisely that it is very complicated. Now, I do have some thoughts actually, but. I want to give you guys a little preview about what we're going to discuss later, but there is something called modern monetary theory. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, have heard kind of that mentioned or thrown around MMT, but essentially we could say that the modern monetary theory people would be the ones that would argue that the government's debt is not that important of a number. Now, some of them would argue that it might not matter at all. Some of them argue, yeah, maybe up until like a point, but for the most part, it doesn't matter. And then you, of course, have people that maybe we can call more sound money people or Austrian school economists that would say, no, this is your, your debase in the currency. This is a huge deal, right? I actually think the answer is a little more complicated is between those two, but we'll get back to that. I want to go back to the US debt. So the answer is it depends again. I All think right. it does. It's always, it always <laughs> depends. Jesus. I think it does. I think it does. But let's break down the U.S. debt a little more. We've got some perspective. But anyway, going back to who owns this money, right? That was a good question. We owe a ton of money. Who owns it? Well, the majority of U.S. debt is owned by Americans. So that's the first thing that we got to learn. That could be the investors, individual investors. That could be banks. And that also counts the Fed. So that's where it starts getting a little complicated, right? Because the Fed kind of like prints the money to buy the treasuries and it's like a like a little cycle. But only 30%, and I'm going to put only in quotations because some people might think that's a lot, but 30% of, of US debt is owned by foreign entities. China and Japan are the two major holders and they have over a trillion dollars in treasuries themselves, okay? 
And the U.S. Treasury is looking to borrow another $3 trillion this quarter, as in April to whatever the quarter is. <laughs> wow. Now, June. We are almost or uh, end of June. Yeah, we're yeah. about halfway through Q2. Um, I don't know if it's worth saying that maybe we don't have to worry about the debt because Trump did say that if he gets reelected, he'll clear the debt. But he also said that before he got elected in 2016. Uh, so maybe don't get your hopes up. Since yeah. Trump got elected after he promised that he would clear the debt, not the deficit, the debt, the total national debt that he was going to clear in eight years. Since he got elected, we have increased $5 trillion in debt. And the last time that the United States had cleared the national debt was Andrew Jackson in 1835. So the United States has not been debt free. Another great president right up there with Donald Trump, by the way. <laughs> he has more in common with Andrew Jackson than just the uh, thought to clear the debt. I didn't know Andrew Jackson was a, a bad president. I I mean, he's on the... He can't be that bad. He's on, you know, he's on a... Uh, Andrew on Jackson uh, was a man of his time which is what happens yeah. with a lot of great men in history, which they can be great men for their time, but as long as society's evolving, they're usually not great men from our new perspective, right? Like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were murderers and rapers and slave owners. Were they great people? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were some of the greatest yeah. people, you know, but like that doesn't mean- One of them even had the great in their name. Yeah, <laughs> right. You can't be Alexander the Great without being great. It's pretty obvious. So yeah, it's kind of tough to analyze historical figures based on modern moral standards, right? So Andrew Jackson was essentially a white nationalist. And, you know, anyway, going back to the dead clock. Since that information was kind of overwhelming, guys, everything, I'm sure you saw it. I mean, it's literally like millions of yeah, numbers just going up and overload, down. Just spinning out of control. So here are some quick estimates. I actually looked at them a little bit. Right now, every 15 seconds, this part's important. Remember, our debt's going up. The interest on that debt is going up and accruing. This part's important. Right now, every 15 seconds, our tax revenue is falling by about $100,000. Now, that is because of a slowdown in economic activity. That is also because we have instituted tax cuts, which cuts the revenue. But this is actually an important part of the story that people might not realize. It's not just that our liabilities are going up, but this economic crisis by shrinking the economy, you are losing tax revenue. Think about all the people that are out of work, right? Well, all of yeah. those people are not paying taxes now because they're not getting any income. Think of all the businesses that no longer have sales tax. They've shuttered their doors. There are a lot of restaurants shuttering here. This is another just anecdotal thing that's happening. I've seen like the we have this big ass brewery here called North by Northwest that just shuttered, sold all its stuff. They're done. Another business called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot was a was a bar downtown. Everybody knew it. It was a reasonably popular bar on Sixth Street in Austin, Texas. Shut down, bought by a development firm for condos. It's just like there's so many businesses that are getting shuttered, and our economy continues to go up. So I don't know. It's very weird. It's a very weird time because there were a lot of businesses who probably weren't operate doing that well to begin with before quarantine. I personally think that quarantine was not needed by any means, but I think that we were kind of getting a little too wrapped up in our own very specific worlds. And that means like 
for example, there were so many breweries around town in LA. Like, do you really need that many breweries? Do you really need that many restaurants? Do you really need like 14 type, you know, restaurants in like a, you know, or, or this or that, like all these juice bars, you know, there's a lot of things that we're just kind of waiting to get eviscerated by uh, an economy that tanks. I'm going to, real quick, I'm going to mention just a, a little look into Adam's head. When he said quarantine wasn't really needed, he wasn't talking about versus the virus. <laughs> he was talking about for businesses. I just want to like oh, clarify that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounded like you were saying we didn't need to quarantine, yeah. which is not what you were saying at no, all. No, no, no I, I wasn't that. saying that. I meant, I meant, uh, yeah. So I meant the <laughs> like we didn't we, we like obviously no one wants the virus to you know take over and force us to quarantine. However, quarantine regarding a lot of these businesses that were a little. Like things just got a little too easy, I feel like, for a lot of people and just thought, you know, oh, we're just going to open up this. We're going to put like, you know, for example, juice bars, I think. I don't think we're going to see many juice bars after this uh, when things reopened because that was already a fragile uh, industry. I think that it's reflective of the fact, right? Like it's not just which businesses do we need, but it's like. Which businesses can the econo- the local economy support? If literally everybody that lives around there is making good money, has middle class lifestyle, they have disposable income, then the answer to how many juice bars is, well, look what Starbucks showed, that you could have a coffee shop in every single corner, right? As long as there is demand. If the people, if the people can actually afford to consume your product, then there's an opportunity for business. But I think that one of the yeah, but we- I, I don't, I don't necessarily. I mean, I I get what you're saying, but also it's the you know, and as a general sense, you're right. People do still need coffee, middle class, or they still will spend money on coffee. However, the small businesses are the ones that are getting crushed because Starbucks will still be there. They'll be able to sustain. Right. However, yeah. the one that that's is the brewing, revelation that's the the one that's making their own coffee and is a mom and pop and you love it, but they're not going to be able to uh, withstand and it, it. And that's going to happen in all industries. Not only does Starbucks have the resources, right? But also the biggest companies have economies of scale and they have special tax loopholes that small businesses don't have access to because they can't just like base their thing in Ireland and pretend that like Apple is an Irish company for the most part and give it a name, you know? But right. I think that the other thing that I was getting at, Adam, actually, is that I think one of the other things that's being exposed in this economy is that a lot of the consumption wasn't organic or it wouldn't have been real if it wasn't for the illusion of security that was created by excessive debt. And now I'm not just talking about the fact that the U.S. government, the U.S. federal government has a ton of debt. But the other story here is that if you look at personal household debt, student loan debt, business debt, guess what? Literally Every chunk of society has the most debt they've ever had. We are the most leveraged we've ever been. And if you look at, for example, the United States, you look at a chart of wage growth. For the bottom, let's say 80, 90% of Americans, wages stopped growing in the 1990s, but consumption didn't stop growing. So how do we, how do we marry those two? Well, what you see is a spike in credit card debt. You see a spike in double mortgages. So essentially, you had this illusion of wealth that was created by the fact that a huge portion of the society 
is slowly getting into deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper debt. And a lot of those Jamba juices were actually bought on credit cards that are already really high, right? They weren't they weren't bought on debit cards with people that can afford that consumption. And I know we're kind of joking around the the specifics here, but it's it's one of the main things. A lot of the reasons why so many businesses are failing is because they have a ton of debt already. They were barely operating on a month-to-month basis, right? Or they can't service their debt and continue with everything else. So it, it's complicated, guys. It's um and look, uh, it, it made me realize how leveraged I, I, the word leverage has never. I mean, it's, it's it's always been a cool word, but I've never truly under. I mean, I, I get the meaning, but I, but seeing it firsthand with the economy and seeing how leveraged everything is, mm-hmm. to, like it, everything is leveraged to everything. It's actually insane. Like the person that is not going to get coffee is now affecting Starbucks, which then affects like, you know, the distributor, you know, it's kind of like the restaurant example. I think I've used in other podcasts before, but like, where it's just like, you know, the distributor is not selling the meat to the the restaurant. Who's not selling it to the consumer. Who's not, doesn't have the money. And it just, now there's excess meat and stuff. And it's just, it's, it's just wild to me how leveraged everything is. And hopefully once things return or starting to return normal, we'll like, like things will. I'd also like to make a commentary on Jamba juice specifically being the butt of every one of these like extra expenditure jokes. Like first people will be like, Oh, you're getting your latte at Starbucks. But when they really have disdain for you is when they bring in Jamba juice, (laughs) they're like, Oh, you got to get your Jamba juice. That's like using your middle name from your mom. You know, like it's like avocado toast. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to massive insult. It's actually crazy how um, nutrition has gone over the past twenty years. Because when I uh, I I would wait tables, and every morning I would be like, there'd be a Jamba Juice next door to where I was I was waiting tables, and I'd think, oh, well, there's fruit in there. There's all this good stuff. And then one day I looked at what I was doing or what I was getting at the nutritional value for an orange dream like machine. And it was 220 like, carbs, 120 grams of sugar yeah. and yeah. like 1500 grams of, uh, yeah, 1500 calories. So but don't worry, we took out all the fiber. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the good riddance Jamba juice. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. And and guys, the numbers, it really is so bad because it, really focusing in on this debt, when you break down the US federal debt, so this is if all of our debt is broken down by every citizen, and again, this is not your personal debt. This is just the portion of the debt that you technically shoulder by being a citizen. It's $75,000 a person, which actually when I heard, when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's bad, but it's not as bad as I thought. Eh, except that's seventy five thousand dollars per citizen per taxpayer. It's two hundred thousand. Citizen counts babies and grandmas that don't work, yep. right? So you owe for the U.S. government two hundred thousand dollars per taxpayer on top of credit card debt, personal credit card debt being at an all time high, mortgage debt being at an all time high, right? So. Definitely a, a rough, rough situation. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this statistic since we are a cryptocurrency podcast. The current currency creation, that's M2 money supply. If you look at the debt clock, we are creating about $100,000 every couple of seconds. It's more or less the rate of inflation. 
How much Bitcoin are we creating every couple of seconds? Well, if we're creating, what, is it seven and a half now? Oh, no, no six, I mean, we, six, we, six we can call five? it zero because we're not creating anymore. No, no, right, well, right, right, right. Like, I guess we, we're unlocking it. So yeah, yeah we're, on, yeah, we're unlocking it. Fair enough. But we know that it's not every couple of seconds. It's every block. Yeah, 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it's like six, not 100,000. <laughs> but anyway, now... This is where it starts getting more complicated because this whole part of the show, we're just saying, oh my God, look at all the debt. It's absurd. We're printing, 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 blah, blah, blah. Fair enough. All of that is true and accurate. But this is an important quote that kind of also reframes the reality of the situation that we're in. This is from Tim Dewey, who's an economist at the University of Oregon. Quote, if the Fed didn't take these and other emergency measures, the system already would have blown up the markets would have crashed 10 times over. Interesting. So so he's supporting what the Fed does, who is usually the boogeyman in every story, right? The Fed is usually the boogeyman in every story. And, you know, without kind of being too mysterious and too coy, my personal takeaway, my uneducated, just kind of, you know, a, per, a regular guy doing research, the take that I'm taking from this is that Countries do have a special ability to create debt, and it doesn't really make sense to create them to a person. Um, but it matters what you do with that debt creation. And if you think about it, guys, this kind of applies to people and businesses too. If you borrow $10,000 on a high interest paying loan so that you can buy a new Versace coat, it's different then if you borrow $10,000 to buy a new oven for your pizza that is blowing up so that you can expand your business, right? One of them right. might be a very good investment. One of them might not. They're both $10,000 in debt. So and yeah, you might be, even if it's business, you're starting your new Herbalife business or whatever the fuck and borrowing money for that. You're doing much better investing in an asset for your pizza business. Yes. Yeah, all the all the excess, like yeah, Gucci or you know all these things. I mean, maybe maybe certain very high end companies. One interesting fine, stat but... that I read about COVID so far: luxury brand purchases have gone up. Wow, fucking blows my mind. That's crazy. Well, the stock market's blowing up, right? And who owns most of the stock? Uh, rich people own most of the stock. Yeah, I, I well, it's only blowing up compared to what it was when it tanked. So I don't think it it reached its all time highs yet, but. Also, I would think that a lot of the rich people already, they have so much money. There's a lot of, especially in LA, there's a lot of rich people who just kind of work at home. They produce music, whatever, whatever they do, and they just make a lot of money. So it's not like, you know, certain certain industries are certain, um, you know, a lot of people who work at home anyways aren't that affected. So maybe they're just buying more Gucci flip-flops and purses i don't know whatever it is that doesn't make that's a crazy stat though i don't understand how it's possible yeah i mean i i've heard multiple claims that seem to be very reasonable about why a lot of these crashes actually work out pretty well for wealthy people you know because a lot of the things that go down in price like essentially what goes up in price is necessities and what goes down in price is luxuries because the ability of the majority of the population to buy luxuries goes down. So demand goes down. So if you want to sell a yacht, maybe you're selling it cheaper than you normally would. Or if you want to sell a fancy TV that's not needed, you sell it cheaper. But now everybody's also the, the demand for basic necessity stays the same, which becomes a bigger burden on poorer people. And I mean, not to mention like 
part of the capitalist system. And, um, you know, whether or not this is a critique of capitalism, everybody can take it for how it is. But the one thing that Thomas Piketty showed is that in a capitalist system, you will always have increasing inequality because capital makes more money than labor. So like the more money you accumulate, the easier it is to make money and the more money you make. And then buying power is huge. Yeah. All right. And as a quick exercise, just to put the numbers in a perspective that we can manage, I found a back of the envelope uh, math simplification. Oh, if the United States was a household, what would the numbers look like? Because I just feel like trillions and billions and quadrillions. I I don't know about you guys, but it just means nothing to me. My brain can't. Yeah, those numbers don't exist. Yeah. But here are some numbers that we can more or less manage. If the US was a household and our income was $100,000 a year, our personal debt would be $714,000. Our credit rating would suck. (laughs) And... That that's, is a really bad debt to income ratio. Now, when we're looking at that debt, that's straight up debt like treasuries. That is not counting unfunded liabilities, which is, for example, Medicare, the VA. These are things that the government has to maintain. If we count unfunded liabilities, those would be $4.2 million in expenses that we have coming up with hundred k a year income, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? Oh, boy. So how are we going to deal with this? I, I think we should borrow more money, Kareem, or print more. That's the only way we're going to be able to catch up to our debt. Well, here's – okay. Now, here's where the situation comes in when we start talking about money printing and all this stuff. I mean, it's pretty clear that our money, our interest, our debt is going to start just getting so much larger than our income, right? The problem is that if they keep creating money in order to deal with this, right, but they don't raise interest rates – then we're going to have inflation in the system. Because remember, the Fed raises interest rates to make money more expensive. It When you raise right. interest rates, you basically take liquidity out of the system. It slows the thing down. If you're printing a bunch of money and the interest rates are low, what's going to happen? Well, there's a lot more money flowing in the system, a lot of money chasing the same amount of goods. That means the prices will slowly increase. How can you counter that? How can we fight that? Well, we could fight that by increasing the interest rates. But what's the problem? By increasing the interest rate, we exacerbate our debt problem because we're paying more interest on our debt. So Mm -hmm. we are kind of in a catch-22 situation, which is why a lot of times, you know, why is the Fed doing what it's doing? They're just doubling down on a mistake that they've been making from one perspective of just printing unlimited money. But like, they're also like the mistake of 2008 is not leaving this Fed a lot of options. And the mistakes of the 90s didn't leave the 2008 Fed a lot of options. It's basically every right. time face the option of either engage in emergency, like keep the ship going before it sinks right now, or quote unquote, let's just let things unfold and let the bubble deflate, aka total systemic breakdown. Uh, and God knows what happens from that, essentially. Yikes! All right. Yeah, it, it 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 can it can be an organization that in theory is doing bad things, but still be doing the right thing at the time. Like, given the options, what you're saying here is that you agree with what the Fed is doing because there isn't a better option. I I'm no, I I'm not saying that because I do think that the Fed has a better option. So one of the main, uh, like I said, one of the main takeaways 
from this situation, from kind of this analysis for me, is that maybe we were in a situation where we needed to use our system to print money. But I think that that money, because of the levers of power, the levers of power in the United States and in most countries are essentially owned by corporations. Corporations own politicians, corporations own the system. The top one-tenth of 1% owns the system, right? So the majority of this stimulus has essentially gone to bail out rich people who bought assets that essentially blew up in their face. So if a bunch of money was being given to, let's say, people, if if a bunch of student debt was being lifted or a bunch of right. very low-income people were given money that they were then going to go and immediately spend on all of local businesses, you could start seeing a domino effect of stimulating activity, which creates kind of a beneficial cycle. Okay, now that business has more business. Maybe they'll hire somebody else. Maybe that helps with unemployment. But instead, we've taken trillions and trillions of dollars and said, oh, um, hey, banks, you made bad loans. Don't worry about it. We got you. Here you go. That money goes for you. And then that bank gives more executive bonuses and, and their CEO gets paid more. And though people still get their mortgages foreclosed on, you see what I'm saying? So I'm not saying I agree with the Fed. What I'm saying is that I don't think any Fed chairman would have handled any of these situations any differently because the historical momentum is too strong. That's what that's kind of what I think. So the money- All right. I got wait. I got a. I got a more layman's comparison here. This is a American football comparison. <laughs> what you're saying is a comparison to like a football coach not going for it on fourth down. It might be the correct play if you do all the math and you do everything right. Going for it on fourth down is right, but if they do and they don't get it, it looks way worse for them. So it's a much safer play to just punt. Um. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to confuse the audience. So anyway, uh <laughs> yeah, <I got> confused. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so far the trajectory seems to be and I think this is important. There's we're going to keep printing currency. I think that that's one of the main takeaways that we can we can grab from this whether it's QE, whether it's helicopter drops, whether it's federal easing, don't be surprised if we see negative interest rates in the United States. You are already seeing them in Europe. I think we're going in the same direction. And it's almost a guarantee that the US is going to keep printing money. So the second question is, how bad is it to devalue the currency? Right? And did you guys know, or I guess this is one of the things I wanted to discuss is for me, like when I used to think about um, devaluing a currency, it just seems inherently bad, right? You as a country want your currency to be strong. That seems that was my simplistic understanding of it. But of course, that's actually right. not the case. You may want your currency to be strong. You may not want your currency to be strong. It totally depends on your specific situation and it affects different groups in different ways. So a lot of the currency devaluation that we have seen historically, some of it has been strategic and on purpose not like just by accident uh, devaluation. So why would a strong currency not necessarily be in the nation's best interest, right? Well, number one, if you have a weak domestic currency, it actually makes your exports more competitive and it makes imports more expensive. Why does it make exports more competitive? Well, think about it this way. If you guys wanted to go buy something from Thailand, 
it's going to be really cheap for you, right? Because the dollar is stronger than the bot. So like as an American, right. if you were doing business with somebody in Thailand and buying their stuff, what it costs them to sell it to you is cheaper for you. Therefore, because you feel like you have a, you're kind of getting a better end of the deal, you are more likely to buy stuff. And in the same way, somebody who is in Thailand trying to start a business probably not going to do a lot of importing from the United States because it's going to be very expensive. And then when they try to sell it in Thailand, people aren't going to have that kind of money. It's too expensive. So they would rather locally source it, right? So what does that mean? Having a weak currency can actually help your exports and it makes it less likely that your country is relying on imports for consumption, which can stimulate your local economy, right? Um, yep, that makes total. That makes perfect sense. It's why we buy everything from China. Exactly. So having more experts also spurs economic growth, right? People are now consuming in your local currency. Um, now, of course, this has side effects. So, you got sorry to you no, know, please. I'm curious about like Venezuela or you know like why it says weak currency is good, but why in those cases you know maybe I'm that's just no, like a, I'm. Just to be clear, though, I'm not saying that a weak currency is good. What I'm exploring here are some, of, are some of the reasons why a country might choose to strategically devalue their currency in relation to oh, another currency. Okay. Now, Venezuela is a failed state. Venezuela didn't just print more money. Venezuela also, for example, lost a bunch of oil production because the dictator in charge put a bunch of his family members and loyalists in charge of a bunch of technical positions. And everybody who knew what they were doing in the oil industry basically had to run away from Venezuela, which made the industry implode, right? So there were other things that have made Venezuela a failed state, which they just try to counter by printing more money and exacerbated the problem, right? But like when you hear- Good answer. When you hear about like- currency wars or something like that or people manipulating this is what they're talking about we can a country can strategically devalue their currency to achieve specific goals that doesn't mean it's not going to have side effects as as we discuss here all the time these decisions are usually trade-offs we in life we don't right. often get to just choose between the good thing and the bad thing it's just trade-offs now and this isn't exactly a benefit to the individual unless you happen to own one of the businesses this is going to be a negative to you the import export thing right exactly you could be an exporter and benefit or you could be the importer and get screwed right that it, like yeah. there's there's somebody on both sides of the equation here for all these stories um countries also have to be careful because devaluating your currency could lower productivity on some sectors. So we were just giving the example of how somebody in Thailand wouldn't want to be doing a lot of importation from the United States. Well, if you are looking at industries that need high-tech components, that's a bad thing because it means that if somebody wants to import machinery from Japan or the United States, but their local currency is very weak, then they're going to be able to afford less machinery, less imports. And they were going to use that machinery to create whatever, computers or I don't know, right? So you can actually affect your productivity. And it also hurts your citizens purchasing power overseas. Americans famously have gotten used to the dollar being very strong. Everywhere you go, usually you get more for your dollar in the local currency. For a lot of people, it's the opposite. Like if you're Colombian coming to the United States becomes very expensive because the dollar is more expensive than the peso. So even just to transact in dollars, we're losing value essentially, right? Mm -hmm. 
couple of other things, you know, there's some other concepts like what is called the uh, wealth effect. So this is more psychological, but essentially when a currency starts being devalued, asset prices go up and it actually makes people feel like they're wealthier. And because they feel like they're wealthier, they spend more. Interesting. I hadn't made the connection until now, but the thing that Brent just mentioned about luxury goods going up, maybe it could be linked to this because you have asset prices, remember stocks are assets, going up as more money's printed, it goes into the system, stocks are going all the way up. So if you own a ton of stock, even if the dollar is being devalued from your perspective, oh, I have a lot more money than I used to. Maybe I will buy that yacht or that Rolex or that whatever. <laughs> we don't have to go any further than our own coinmarketcap.com to, to see this effect in action. Uh, if you remember during the 2017 like booms here, uh, we, we would see coins like XRP or XLM or whatever, the, the coins that were small dollar value per coin would spike and it would be because people would be like well i could buy a bitcoin for ten thousand or i could buy one of these for 72 cents <laughs> and they would have way more of those in their portfolio and make them feel like they had more crypto and by That's the same true. token when crypto blew up even though i wasn't planning on moving my crypto or selling it the fact that those numbers look so big when i checked my phone made me feel wealthier than I really was. And when it crashed, yes. even though I was still not planning on selling it, my consumption probably went down because I realized you ain't rich, <laughs> right? Yep. So that's a that's a version of the wealth effect. But this is, of course, on a societal level, okay? Also, if, if luxury goods go down and that yacht now went from 400K to 300K and you're still like, you know, you feel like where are you finding three hundred thousand dollar yachts? I want <laughs> one of those. <laughs> sorry, I'm not well versed in the uh, yacht prices. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> in, in the billions that they require. Yeah, yeah. He, Adam would not be I good think at you buy a yacht for three hundred k. Hey guys, we're not playing billionaire prices, right? We know Adam wouldn't be good at it. <laughs> Adam, how much? <laughs> how much is the most expensive bottle of wine in the world? Oh, that's like eighty five k. Wow, way under. Okay, anyway. I don't know. I'm just assuming that somebody somewhere paid a million dollars for fucking grape juice because that's what rich people do. Yeah, I'm sure they did. All right. So one thing that is important to note is other countries have agency too. This is important, not so much for the United States, uh, but for everybody else. Devaluing your currency doesn't always work because the other country can counter you. And this is what is meant by currency wars, right? So maybe you have a trading partner and you think to yourself, oh, I want to get more exports. I'll just print more money, right? Well, won't necessarily work, right? The other country can try to essentially do a race to the bottom with you to see, to counter your devaluation. And now you could both be devaluating your currencies. And before, Adam, you mentioned that there was probably nobody in the world that fully understands it. And I, I actually really, really agree with you. I think this part's really important because economies are emergent systems. It's kind of like the brain. It's kind of like weather that even though we think we understand it and we learn it, it can still be very chaotic. And the connection to that here is that a lot of these government officials even if they have good economists and even if they do have good intentions, there's a good chance that whenever they make decisions about devaluing, they can't factor in all of the unintended consequences that could emerge from that devaluation. We can only have models and predictions and projects. You don't know what other people are going to do. You don't know how everybody's going to react. You don't know what financial markets are going to respond. So 
all of these decisions are political decisions that have unintended consequences. And that's also important to remember. Yeah, you can only anticipate what, what's going to happen. And usually there's going to be things that you can't predict. That is the actual, if you're going to try and be strategic, you got to be sneaky too. <laughs> oh, by the way, yachts, you can buy used yachts from 400K to 600K. So take that. Good read. So hold on. I guess the definition of yacht is one of those like sailboats technically is a yacht. So that makes sense. But like actual, like when you think of yacht, you're thinking like, I'm on a boat, motherfucker. That's the, those are in the like million. I'm looking, I'm looking at like a 105 foot yacht from 2017, 500K. Straight up. I would be singing I'm on a boat if I was able to buy a kayak. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, Brent. Um, it is a great song. All right. So, guys, those were some of the reasons why a country would purposely devalue their currency. And I specifically say that some because, you know, like I said, we could boost exports. We could shrink uh, trade deficits, right? Like if your country's importing too much and exporting too little, then you could achieve a better balance uh, by devaluing your currency. But there is a third strategic reason why a country would want to devalue their currency. And this one is probably the one that could apply to the United States the most because it's actually really hard for the United States to devalue the dollar in relation to other fiat currencies. Maybe not in relation to gold or something like that, but in relation to other fiat currencies which have the same system, the dollar is king by like a lot. So even yeah, when, we're trying our best and failing. Yeah, exactly. And you probably would keep failing because for every dollar that we print and we have people here screaming, oh my God, you're devaluing the dollar. There are investors all over the world that would love nothing more than to change their quote unquote crappy fiat for US dollars. So there are other forces at play there. But what is the other important reason why a country might devalue their currency? Well, if you guys think about it, you can actually reduce your sovereign debt burden by devaluing your currency. Think about it this way. If a debt payment is fixed, like if I owe you $100, I don't owe you what $100 can buy today. I owe you right, $100, right. right? So if the yeah. currency becomes weaker, we can essentially make these debt payments less expensive. So let's say that I owed somebody a million dollars a month. If I was able to devalue the currency by 50%, by 100%, right? The same million dollars that I have to pay you is only worth $500,000 of good services wealth, right? Because right. The so to put that in perspective, you would owe two used yachts uh, <laughs> on the month. And if you devalue your currency enough, then you would only owe one used yacht. Yes. Oh, on that same month. Yes. Your analogies today are really good, Brent. Really, really good. I thought so. Really it's a good callback. So <laughs> this is important because it might also be that the more our debt problem gets bad, the more incentive that the US will have to actually devalue the currency and essentially reduce the debt burden, right? Because this is what countries do. And as a matter of fact, the very famous hyperinflation of post-World War Germany 
This was part of the reason that it was done. It was kind of done strategically because they were given such tremendous debt payments that they weren't going to be able to keep. Of course, there's other factors. I'm not saying that this covers everything, but essentially the the German government was like, oh, okay, you guys, we owe you a gajillion trillion of our currency and we're all broke and we don't have any money. Sure. Then we'll just print infinite of them. And here you go. Here's (laughs) Here's our debt payment and it's nothing. But you just said we owe you 5 billion, right? You didn't say blah, blah, blah. So- this is how it can be strategic. And I guess to wrap this concept up a little bit about what the future may hold, Alan Greenspan, uh, you know, Federal Reserve Chairman uh, up until in 2011, he said, the United States can pay any debt that it has because we can always print more money to do so. So there is zero probability of default. Wow. Right? And- Yep. I mean, this is uh, like essentially how it's going to be approached, right? Now, real quick, I know this episode has really kind of ran a long time and I just want to cover a few more topics. I'm going to rush through just a just a little bit, but it's important also for us to remember that most governments are doing very similar things to what the United States is doing, right? We can't just think of the US dollar in the context of Bitcoin or gold or crypto, because crypto is a drop in the bucket compared to the other world currencies. And the bottom line is that in a basket of world currencies, where all of the central banks are essentially printing a ton of money, then it it becomes much more complicated to just assume that to understand how this is all going to play out or to just assume that this is bad for the US because it's almost like the US is devaluing the dollar, but every other fiat currency is devaluing faster, which is essentially making the dollar relatively stronger, even if it is devaluing against gold, silver, and Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, some more perspectives about the kind of like the probability of the strength of the dollar Central bank foreign currency reserves, so that's all of the central banks around the world, 61% of their reserves are in US dollars. Yeah, it's so crazy. (laughs) So we get to inflate the rest of the world while we inflate ourselves. Exactly. The next most widely held currency by by central banks is the euro, and that's only 21% of reserves. So US dollars make up three times as much global reserves as the euro. And these countries still are going to have demand for dollars because a lot of that debt is denominated in dollars because the dollar is considered more stable. So we're in an interesting situation, like America for Wait, all its failures. So just to kind of understand this, are you saying that foreign banks still have a lot of dollars as well? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. A ton, yeah. So, so think about it this way, like central banks essentially have different asset classes, right? Like for example, the Federal Reserve doesn't just have money. The Federal Reserve also has all of the mortgage-backed securities that they bought from the banks, or they might have a bunch of treasury bills. So central banks actually have assets. China and Russia, for example, have been known to be buying up a lot of gold over the last couple of decades. They've increased, especially Russia increased its gold consumption after or purchasing after 2008. Another thing that banks can buy which is stable, is dollars. They can buy dollars and keep their reserves in dollars. So out of all of the world's banks, all of the reserve assets that aren't held in the local currency, only 21% of that is in euros. 
61% of it is in dollars. Needless to say, there's only 20% left. So it's like the US dollar, it's such a standard. Like there might not be a gold standard, but there's still a dollar standard, which makes it very weird to try to understand what the value of the dollar is. Really higher is. than Bitcoin is to the market. That's a great comparison. Yeah. US dollar dominance on the world is significantly stronger than Bitcoin dominance is in crypto. That's a great. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also important to remember that since devaluing local currencies applies to a ton of countries that do business with the US, like China and Japan, because a lot of people say, well, what happens when China and what happens when Japan want to crash the dollar by selling all that debt? Well, yeah, but we just explained why countries like China and Japan would want their currency to be weaker than the dollar, right? They right. want to export to the, the US. The right. They want the US to be buying Chinese products. So why would the Chinese want the dollar to devalue, to knock out their number one consumer other than themselves, right? So I think that people who like crypto are very familiar with sound money, right? Or like the idea that, hey, we're devaluing the currency, gold, crypto, not manipulatable. Fair enough. Modern monetary theory is essentially arguing that if a government controls its own currency, it can never default on the debt. Therefore, it should always be willing to create debt to stimulate the economy because it literally has no probability of default. You and I could default on our debt. They can't. They can always create money to pay off the debt. That is the argument of MMT. So essentially, well, if they're making a, if they're borrowing in their own currency, yes. As long as the government controls its own currency, that's right. Yeah. Which, by the way, is part of the reason Greece had the crisis that it did, because countries like Greece and Italy gave up their ability to control their local currency. The euro is centrally controlled. So when the United States, when all of this crisis happened, and the United States could just press a button and create a bunch of money to pay their debts, Greece couldn't do that. That's why there was such a big argument about paying the Greek debt. And we haven't seen a lot of arguments about paying the American debt or the Japanese debt, right? Because those countries could just print more money. Greece couldn't, right? So that is one of the crucial factors here where MMT applies. So the question is, though, if the deficits and the interest start blowing up, is there really no limit? Could we just create more and more and more money and more debt and it just never matters, right? So the MMT... At least the most serious ones that I found, it's essentially saying that the important part is that the government doesn't have to have a balanced budget. It's not that there's no limit, right? But it just, as long as your debt is increasing at the same rate or more slowly than GDP, aka as long as you are using your debt to create more income and that new income is growing faster than debt, MMT would argue we are good and you can create as much as you need to. All right. Now, mm -hmm. some criticisms of MMT, though, are the fact that, for example, the people who promote modern monetary theory, they essentially rely on the president and Congress fighting inflation at some point. And here's what they say. Hey, you can use the central bank to create more currency. And then if there's too much money in the system, then the president or Congress can raise taxes right? <laughs> to essentially kind of take some of that out of the system. Well, guys, or, or they can reduce government spending. Okay. When has like, it just completely ignores the political reality that politicians are never going to want to raise taxes and politicians are never going to want to cut spending, right? Whereas like the yeah. central bank 
is always not going to have a problem printing money. So if your system relies on the central bank being balanced out by Congress and the president, then or by at least for even a logical decision making by those parties. Exactly. Like, <laughs> then that's a systemic failure right there, because clearly yeah. that's not what happens in real life. Right. And then uh, the last uh, criticism that I, I also found on MMT is that it does ignore some of the effects of just continuing to borrow because MMT really just considers it's almost as if all of the debt was in a circular kind of motion. So MMT is saying, hey, listen, you need a trillion dollars, create a million dollars, a trillion dollars worth of treasuries. All these American investors will buy them. And then you'll just, you, you move money from one column to another, and then you'll move it back to them when you pay them back. That's not that big of a deal. It's assuming it's all contained within the same system. But in reality, what did we just explain? 30% of that debt is hold is held by foreign entities, which means that when we pay interest on that debt, as we're going forward, that wealth is leaving the United States. So essentially, this is creating a system where as that debt becomes more and more and more, all of those interest payments are taking wealth away from future generations of Americans. And oh, wow. what we're essentially doing is reducing income that's going to be flowing to you as residents. We're going to make Americans less well off. And the only way you could justify it, the only way we could say, let's take future wealth from future Americans is if the spending that we were doing was raising the standard of living in the future. So as a random example, let's say that we borrowed a bunch of money and taught every American how to code. And because of that, average salaries went up and that in 10 or 15 years, Americans are the most sought after coders in the world. Well, in that scenario, kind of makes sense to pay up front now. And we're okay because we made so much more money off of it. Right. But if you use all of that debt to essentially bail out uh, risky loans and those bankers just put that money in their pocket and there's no increase in standard of living, then you're looking at a, something that could be a systemic uh, problem. So since I'm going on these great analogies here, I'm just going to keep going. What you're saying here is America is a high-octane startup that is spending money as fast as they make it to increase their output, and we're just looking for somebody to come by and give us some serious seed funding so we can sell and be... Wow. I don't know how you made uh, an analogy that was more complicated than the first two, but I think you just did. I think he just wants to stay on a roll. All right, guys. Also, real quick, Bitcoin is actually 65% or somewhere between 65 and 68% right now. So technically, I was wrong. But in the past, Bitcoin has been less, uh, less, or sorry, the USD has had more dominance than Bitcoin. And you, yeah, yeah, it's a, USD still might because we were only looking at central bank reserves. If you're looking at total true. assets held by in the entire world, that includes investors all over the world, I'm pretty sure US dominance might be just as much, if not more, as Bitcoin dominance, right? So, anyway, like this is, I, I feel like it's a lot of stuff that's kind of been thrown down. There's just a lot of concepts. As usual, instead of really adding a lot of clarity, uh, I'm more saying, hey, it's complicated and it all depends and nobody really gets it. But I'd like to finish out with, because I know that we're all very, like I said, pro crypto, pro hard assets. Uh, we kind of feel like the dollar is going to get devalued. So I wanted to wrap up with the economist that I uh, mentioned earlier in the show, Peter Zihan, Zihan. And he studies demographics. He's got some really interesting talks. And he recently did an interview with uh, Anthony uh, Pompliano, 
He actually has some very, oh. yeah, he, he has some very, really interesting interviews. And the main thing that he wanted to like kind of remind, and he really put into context the strength of the dollar and the strength of the United States going into this future economy, which number one, he says, if you look at most countries, they didn't really recover from the financial crisis um, because they had less monetary flexibility. I didn't know this, but the Fed printed more stimulus after 2008 than every other central bank in the world combined, right? Oh, wow. So essentially- they have less flexibility because they just start inflating their currency. It's affecting them locally. Whereas like the United States having this global system can just be like, yeah, we're printing more dollars and all of you guys are just going to keep buying it because your local option is even shittier, right? <laughs> Demographics seem to favor the United States from a perspective of future consumption. Actually, Europe and countries like Japan have really, really bad demographic charts where they have an aging population and a much smaller group of young people. The United States is in the situation where millennials are actually the largest generation. And even though we're cash strapped, just from a purely demographic perspective, the United States is looking much better over the next 20 years or 30 years than China with their one-child policy, Japan with oh, yeah. a very aging policy, and also Europe. Okay, He also pointed out that there's still demand for U.S. debt. As much as people in our space might look at this U.S. and the Federal Reserve and say, oh my God, it's just why would anybody want this? The people who actually have money everywhere in the world want it. That's the bottom line. Almost all of the $3 trillion that we created was bought up by foreigners. All right? And his main kind of conclusion looking to the forward, like what is the US going to look like? He basically says, if you think about it, there are only like eight fiat currencies that could be considered to even compete for global dominance. There's the US, of course. China tried to open, like make their currency more global. And as soon as they started opening up their markets, $1.5 trillion of wealth fleed China. Because all the Chinese were essentially just trying to get their money out of China. That lasted six months. They ended it. They're done with it. China's not going to try that again. The yen, apparently they tried that back in the 80s and it didn't work. So now the Japanese are fine with having a local currency that they can just inflate and print to infinity. The euro is clearly in a crisis, right? Everybody knows. What's the next best one? The British pound. Does anybody really think that after the last three years, the British pound is going to become a global currency after Brexit, after all of this disaster that they've had? England is going to be in a terrible situation where their only trading partners are going to be essentially the US and Canada, right? And after that, his point is basically the next best RAND currency is the Canadian currency, but a country of 30 million people, 35 million people is just never going to run the global economy, right? And then right. after that, it's Australia, Sweden, New Zealand. These are all just kind of tiny in comparison. So his main perspective is you can think that the dollar is weakening, but there's literally no competitor right now to the US dollar. Unless you think that's Bitcoin, unless you think that's gold, right now, the demographics and geopolitical situation is pointing to a strengthening dollar, despite the fact that we're just going money printer go. Brrr. It's kind of nuts. <laughs> it's kind of wow. nuts. This is actually, I mean, I think that Kareem, thanks for this lesson 
on the economy and, you know, the debt, because I can't tell you how many posts I see from just an average person on Facebook or Twitter being like, you know, like, oh, God, what are we going to do about the debt? And it's like you took a real deep dive into trying to figure this out because and, and, and it's just it's helpful for me to see those people and know that, like, it's not that simple. Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, those people, their deep dive is they read an article on CNN or Fox News. No, no, right? no. Their deep dive is they've read a sentence that says that the, you know, the. Yeah, they read the title <laughs> of an article. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, crazy stuff, guys. There's still, you know, we live in interesting times. None of this is to say that we really know how it's all going to play out. And I think there's still a lot of potential for unexpected uh, events, right? Black swans, agency. We, we don't really know what the future holds. But certainly, I think that the views that we are presented in our space are sometimes very biased and very limited. Expand your mind. Join the Crypto Basic Discord for that kind of discussion. Well, and I, remember that despite all this, we're not financial advisors. I also just want to, uh, you know, this is the first time I've ever used this word, but I want to say thank you for assuaging my fears of uh, the word of the day calendar. Whoa. And I, uh, wow. okay. Can you also like how what does that mean? So I I can tell it, by the context. Means, <laughs> <laughs> it means make an unpleasant feeling less intense. Oh yes, that's a good way. You got the definition right there. I had to make sure that I thought it, and I was like, all right, if we're gonna say this on a freaking podcast, we need to at least Google to make sure that this is the right usage. And it was. I know exactly how you feel when we first started the podcast. You can ask Brent. I was like so paranoid. I'm like, I can't say something wrong if it's incorrect. It's on the internet forever. They're forever. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I had the someone wanted to transcribe uh you know like i always think like transcripts on podcasts are funny because it's like oh god now it's like you're doubly wrong double forever yeah Ugh. that's it guys that's uh i could we that's can make it, it another six hour hours but yeah i think that's plenty <laughs> yeah. awesome jason's gonna be so happy when he gets this one yeah one and a half hours uh super fucking happy guys thank you very much all right everybody subscribe join our mailing list the flagship Friday is now on the Crypto Basic mailing list. All those things that you were used to for our, our little commentary on the uh, on the weekly goings on. You're going to get about five stories in their commentary in your inbox. CryptoBasicPodcast.com slash newsletter. Go there. See you, everybody. We out. Sayonara. Sayonara.